The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. NetSuite by Oracle brings accounting, finance, inventory, and HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce costs everywhere. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. So head to netsuite.com slash Wall Street right now. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already subscribing to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, are we in the midst of a Biden boom? U.S. economy has been on a run of exceptionally strong economic data for months now. In 2023, gross domestic product expanded by 2.3%. Now, that's somewhat above the trend for the last few years, but the data suggests that activity was accelerating in the second half of the year. Growth in the fourth quarter was 3.3%, and that followed a rate of 4.9% in the third quarter. These are exceptional numbers by recent standards. 2024 started in the same vein. The jobs market remains buoyant, with employers adding over 300,000 jobs in January, and the unemployment rate staying near its recent low of well below 4%. Other data have also been strong. Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's estimate of real-time economic growth right now is pointing to growth in the current quarter of 4.2%. So again, as I say, this is not only well above trend, but it also makes the US comfortably the top performing large economy in the world. Europe is stagnant, Germany's in mild recession in particular, and China seems locked in a slump. This US strength is all the more remarkable because it comes after the most intense period of monetary policy tightening in decades. Federal Reserve raised its Fed funds rate by more than five percentage points in a little over a year to the middle of last year, 2023, Market interest rates also shot up. The yield on the 10-year Treasury bond at one point touched almost 5% last fall. This would normally be expected to crush demand as consumers and businesses are faced with sharp increases in their debt service costs. But instead, the economy just seems to be merrily rolling along. But there are still question marks. While inflation has come down from its peak in 2022, at around 3% at the moment, it still is above the Fed's target of about 2%. And after a long period of stagnation, wage growth does seem finally to be matching or even outstripping the inflation rate. That's good news for workers, of course, but it could persuade the Fed to keep interest rates high for a while yet, and those rates might finally start to really bite into the economy. So what is going on? Is this the soft landing economists have long dreamed about as inflation moderates without tipping the US into recession? Or are we all just getting way ahead of ourselves and could we be in for a rude shock later this year? And what should the Fed do in these circumstances? Cut rates soon? or keep policy tight to squeeze price pressures still further. Well, I am delighted to say that to discuss all this, this week I have one of the greatest minds in economics around, Glenn Hubbard. Hubbard is Professor of Economics at Columbia University, where he also previously served as Dean of the Business School. He was Chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, and is the author of several books on economic topics such as fiscal policy, deregulation, and corporate governance and financial institutions. And Professor Glenn Hubbard joins me now. Glenn, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. My pleasure. So we've seen this pretty impressive run of economic data for the US now over quite some time. Very strong growth, second half of 2023, good outturn for the year as a whole. Inflation coming down steadily from its peak of the middle of 2022. 2024 seems to have started very strong. Labor market still strong. Big, big jobs gain in January. Unemployment still low. In fact, the US performing better than the rest of the world. Can I just ask, is this a Biden boom? Well, I wouldn't call it a Biden boom. It is a boom that is happening while President Biden is in office. But part of it came from 
the sort of excessive pandemic stimulus we had, fiscal policy and monetary policy. We've had a series of industrial policy measures under President Biden that have provided short-term stimulus. But I, I wouldn't call it a Biden boom because I don't see anything that's linked to long-term productivity growth in this boom. There's a lot of good news potentially there in the economy, but it's unrelated to who's sitting in the White House. Is it sustainable? And again, I want to go through the sources of this strong growth and also obviously some of the challenges. But what's your view as you look at it right now? Is it sustainable or are other storm clouds gathering? Well, I'm going to give you the classic economist answer, Jerry, of no and yes. So no, it's not sustainable in the sense that will this level of stimulus continue to have the effects that it's having? That's not going to happen. Inflation is still too high. The Federal Reserve will have to remain on a probably less than desirable to politicians interest rate path for at least the next several months. But yes, in the sense that we are on the cusp, I believe, of a generative AI boom in productivity growth. That, again, is unrelated to whether it's President Biden or President Trump, except possibly by their policies. But it is the source of potential productivity gains and a very successful economy, I think, going forward. So just again, to clarify, and again, the U.S. has had elevated growth, not only against the recent trend, and of course, things are kind of complicated by the pandemic, but you know, we seem to be in a reasonably good period of sustained economic growth above recent trend. But not only that, but also stronger than the rest of the world. Europe is kind of in a continuing slump. The German economy is actually kind of in a mild recession. China, most strikingly, the economy that we all look to for so many years, seems to be in a slump. So the U.S.'s outstanding performance, at least relative to those other countries, I don't want to get carried away here. By the way, the U.S. has bounced back from the pandemic much stronger than any of those other economies. And again, you think that is primarily because this really big fiscal stimulus that we've had, do you? I think that's much of it, Jerry, but I would say the U.S. economy itself is more resilient than the other economies. Remember, China has for some time, at least in my view, faced structural headwinds of capital misallocation that are coming home to roost. European economies have faced a number of structural headwinds as long as I can remember. So the, the resilience of the U.S. economy, I think, is very important and very positive. But yes, the stimulus did have a big effect. The big puzzle, obviously, that's been on everybody's minds, and you partly addressed it with this talk of the fiscal stimulus, but I think it still remains a bit of a puzzle. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 500 basis points in a period of little over a year, between 2022 and early 2023, which obviously to tackle inflation, which had got way, way beyond its target, at one point reaching 9% in, in 2022. Fed's done that, raised interest rates. Market rates have gone up to 10-year Treasury yield You know, in the fall, hit nearly 5%. You're the economist. But I think every period of history when monetary policy has been tightened like that, the economy has at minimum slowed. The unemployment rate has usually got up, you know, for all the reasons we understand and know about tightening credit and all of that. And usually, I think in most cases, a recession has resulted on that kind of degree of tightening. This time around, we've not only seen no recession, and as some people talk about, you know, we've had this miraculous soft landing or whatever. Some people even say we've had no landing at all. I mean, the economy, as I say, since the Fed has been raising rates, has actually its growth has accelerated. Unemployment has remained very, very low, below 4%. And of course, inflation has come down. How do you explain that historically very, very aberrant performance for the economy in response to such a tightening of monetary policy? Well, it's a great question. The economy has continued to evolve in its structure. So remember, Fed policy is working principally through interest-sensitive spending. So think housing, cars, durable goods. Those are a smaller fraction of consumption than they might have been in previous business cycles. 
I think the fact that we have a very large service sector of the economy makes it a little harder for monetary policy to get its arms around things. That said, Milton Friedman reminded us decades ago of long and variable lags in monetary policy. So the fact that we haven't seen the full effects of the Fed policy does not mean that it isn't there. So remember that a soft landing is still a landing, and no landing would truly be a disaster because that would mean inflation stuck at a high level and either a Fed losing its credibility or the Fed needing to take much more policy action. So I'm certainly more hopeful for a soft landing than no landing. You would say we still haven't really had the soft landing. We're still in a kind of no landing phase with inflation still around 3%, right? That's right. And the 3% doesn't sound high relative to 9%. But a few years ago, if you'd said the Fed was a percentage point above its target, alarm bells would be ringing. And I think they are ringing in some uh, quarters of the Federal Reserve System. So I don't think the Fed is in any particular hurry to cut the federal funds rate. I've felt that for the past few months. I think the market was way ahead of itself in forecasting funds rate cuts. I want to get on to the Fed and the immediate outlook. Obviously, we've seen the results of the Fed meeting last week and then Jay Powell's interview last weekend, as you say, exactly as you say, suggesting that rate cuts might be a little further off in the distance. And I do want to get on to that. But let's just sticking on this conundrum of the Fed raising rates and the economy not really coming into any kind of landing at all. But of course, inflation has come down from at least as measured by the CPI, from 9% down to about 3%. And measures of core inflation, which the Fed are obviously more important ones that strip out highly volatile goods and services, that inflation has come down too. How do you explain this, again, this divergence that inflation has come down without damage to apparently aggregate demand, without damage to the labor market? Again, the kind of things that the way we thought the Fed's mechanisms impacted on aggregate demand, especially through things like the labor market, it doesn't seem to have worked. And yet inflation has still come down. Well, it's important to remember that inflation had gone up, not purely for demand side reasons. So economists who studied the run-up in inflation around the COVID pandemic and following attribute about half of it to fluctuations in aggregate supply, the supply chain disruptions, the conflict in Ukraine, and so on, and about half from excessive demand from Federal Reserve actions. Remember, the federal funds rate had been very low before. The Fed was still goosing up the housing market going into this period. So it's about half-half. So the fact that we've seen the first rundown in inflation from easing above supply chain factors, you wouldn't really expect to have the demand-destructive effect. So I, I think the hard part now is how much of that remaining elevation in inflation is demand and how much of it's supply. I personally, I think it's mainly demand, and the Fed still has work to do. Again, just try and sort of unravel that, because there was the whole debate a couple of years ago about whether inflation was transitory. Famously, Jay Powell himself, in those early years, straight after the first year or so after the pandemic, when inflation was picking up, that was the Fed's mantra. It was, you know, oh, this is intransitory. It's a supply-side phenomenon, not a demand-side phenomenon. It's due to those factors. And, you know, the Fed was very late in responding and then finally did respond and did respond aggressively. But does the fact that we've seen this decline in inflation without it going through the usual transmission mechanisms of federal of monetary policy, does that maybe suggest that the transitory people, the people that the Fed, Jay Powell back in 2021, was right and sort of Jay Powell in 2022 was wrong, that actually... This was a transitory phenomenon caused by unusual supply-side disruptions related to the pandemic and maybe some other things too, and that maybe actually that the fears that were stoked then were overdone and maybe even the Fed over-responded in the end to the inflation that we did see. I don't think that's right. I think that both 
the supply and demand factors were important. I thought the Fed's use of the word transitory was unfortunate because it's not clear what it ever meant. You know, in the eyes of God, my lifespan is transitory, but hopefully it's still several years. And so I think what the Fed meant at the time by transitory was that inflation would go away on its own. That is its supply chain. As I said, it's both. And so the Fed is taking credit for the big decline in inflation, but much of that is the resolution of supply chain. So I think it was both transitory and longer-term demand factors. And unfortunately, I think we've worked our way through most of the transitory factors. So the question for the Fed is, does it think it has enough tightening in the pipeline that once it works its course, we return to 2%? Or does it need to keep policy rates higher for longer? I think it's the latter. So let's look at where the Fed is and where it should be. So the Fed offers these regular projections of economic growth. The Federal Open Market Committee members give their projections of growth, and you get these charts, which tell us this. So when the Fed last summer raised the federal funds rate up above 5%, the projection for economic growth and for the labor market were much bleaker relative to where they came out. You could argue the Fed was thinking it was going to take that level of interest rates. They were still projecting, for example, I think well over 3% inflation by the end of 2023. Everything turned out better in that respect. Inflation turned out somewhat lower. As we've said before, the unemployment of the economy generally turned out lower. Doesn't that suggest that at least on that alone, that the Fed's belief in what it needed to do to get inflation down turned out to be wrong, and that we now have a very high real Fed funds rate, probably around 2% or something like that. And is that really needed for the economy now to get inflation down? What's your view about where the Fed is relative to where it was expecting to be six or nine months ago? Well, it's a great question. In some sense, it's the question for markets and for the economy. While the real Fed funds rate is higher than it had been, it's not out of historical experience. If the real interest rate needed to be a little bit higher because of, say, an impending productivity boom or a number of reasons, you know, it's hard to know. So I'm not sure that the Fed is too tight. I think the Fed needs to be vigilant, but it is. Remember, our last payroll print was substantially higher than anybody had thought. This is still an economy that's running hot. Under the hood are issues of oil price weakening, geopolitics, and importantly to me, domestic politics that may throw a monkey wrench in there. But I I don't think it's obvious that the Fed is too tight at the moment. Where do you stand on the labor market, Glenn? Because, you know, again, unemployment is below 4%. We've continued to see strong payroll growth, very strong number in January. Uh, We did have that slightly odd, I suppose, kind of average hours worked actually declined which meant that the overall increase in wages was actually less because, well, our hourly earnings increased, so total weekly earnings actually were, I think, pretty flat. But where do you think the labor market is? There is this view of some people very critical of the Fed for following what the sort of traditional Phillips curve effect, right? That unemployment is low. That suggests a very tight labor market that's feeding through into wage increases. We're maybe starting to see that significantly, and that's going to be inflationary, and the Fed needs to get on top of it. There's an alternative view, which is that that's just not a relevant issue, that real wages have been stagnant anyway for a long time. They may be recovering now, but the Fed should be focused on much more other issues like the overall financial conditions and things like that. Where do you stand on this issue of how important the labor market should be in the Fed's determination of of the right approach to monetary policy? Well, I think the labor market is important in the sense that it's very important to avoid wage price spirals, which the Fed was leaning hard into and many economists had worried about over the past six to nine months. But I, I don't think a strict Phillips curve is really what needs to guide policy. I think a lot more attention to financial conditions is important. And of course, every time the Fed has made communications missteps, 
Recently, it has inadvertently perhaps loosened financial conditions, making its job harder. Financial conditions are hardly tight at the moment, making it more difficult for the Fed to get to its 2% target. And as you say, they're hardly tight because we've seen a real sort of boom in equity prices, a pretty significant fall in market interest rates, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's really helped buoy the economy. So the Fed last week kind of seemed to damp some of these market expectations of a significant number of rate cuts and early rate cuts as early as March. Jay Powell kind of reinforced that in his interview at the weekend. What do you expect now? Do you still expect there to be any interest rate cuts this year? And if so, when do they start? Uh, There may well be, but I don't expect interest rate cuts in the first half of the year unless something extremely untoward is happening in the world economy that we can't forecast today, mainly because I think the Fed is trying to make sure that it's done its job before cutting policy interest rates. Again, it's always impossible to quantify, but you mentioned some of these geopolitical tensions, issues concerning shipping in the Red Sea and what's happened to shipping rates as a result of that, some of those pressures. Is that something the Fed is going to be mindful of? And is that something that might even require them to lean a little bit on the easing side in a precautionary way, given these fears about you know escalating global conflict? Well, it's a good question. To the extent that it's really supply chain issues from the conflict, that's more in the flavor of a supply shock itself. I'm not sure the Fed would lean there one way or the other. But to the extent that it's an increase in uncertainty that affects risk premia and aggregate demand, the Fed might become precautionarily more cautious. I think that's a concern. If I were a market participant, I would be at least as worried about U.S. domestic politics in that regard than I am about geopolitics. And what about the inflation target itself? I mean, the Fed, again, we know it stated publicly it's going for a target of around 2%. You know, so again, the core inflation seems to be around 3 right now. You know, again, depending on it, you can splice this any number of ways. If you strip out things like obviously food and energy, but things like housing, some of the other issues in there that you actually are seeing an even lower trend towards a core rate. Do you think that as we stand... Inflation is on course to come down to three. Everybody talks about the last mile being incredibly difficult. You know, they've got inflation down from nine to three, but getting it from three to two. Are we well on course for that? Or do you think that's going to be really sticky, getting inflation down below 3%? I think it's going to be sticky. And the problem here is not so much economics. I think the Fed knows what to do. It would be maintaining a higher level of the policy rate and maybe taking different balance sheet actions. But there will be a number of political voices on both sides of the political aisle in the United States expressing concern, putting the Fed in the crosshairs. You'd asked about the inflation target itself. I'm reminded of the quip, I wouldn't start from here, is the answer to the question of how to get someplace. 2% may or may not be the right number. It came up largely from the Boskin Commission report decades ago of what would be the answer to the question, what level of inflation is roughly price stability given our measurement errors. But I always like the green span definition better. Inflation is not a problem if we're not talking about it. So I probably wouldn't have started at two, but since we're at two, I think a Fed that already has credibility issues would be really pressing its luck to lock in a different rate. But you would think, again, if you had your druthers, maybe two is just two, is it sort of inflexibly low? Would you either favor a higher target or a little more flexibility around the two target? Perhaps a little more flexibility, a little more of a, a range, as I say, more to the Greenspan intuition. If it's slow enough that we're not talking about it, it's not a problem. Whereas two creates this sort of very precise number that 1.9 is a problem and 2.1 is a problem, but two isn't. That strikes me as odd. Yeah, there is a view that obviously we are very much in the throes of a 
very hot political debate on immigration right now, and in particular on illegal immigration. We've seen astonishing numbers of so-called asylum seekers, of illegal migrants crossing the border over the last couple of years. And there is a view that that actually, forget the politics, forget the national security issues, the border issues, all of that. But that inflow of huge numbers of migrants might have been a contributing factor in keeping wage growth relatively low. Do you have a view on that? I think it is an important factor there, particularly for lower skilled occupations, much less so than for high skilled immigration. And therein lies the rub. You know, part of the political debate over low skilled immigration is whether the wages of native born Americans are affected. They probably aren't for engineers or physicians, but for lower skilled workers, they may well be. Immigration is very important for the American economy. I don't see the path for growth that's possible for us without solving an immigration problem that has a good legal immigration system. So this is one we've got to get better on our politics. We're going to take a short break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Glenn Hubbard. We're talking about the outlook for the U.S. economy, but also about some of the deeper structural changes that may be going on and maybe changing the long-term performance of the U.S. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Glenn Hubbard, professor of economics at Columbia University and formerly George W. Bush's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. And we're talking about the outlook for the U.S. economy. Okay, so let's talk about these structural changes that may be going on in the economy, particularly in terms of productivity. And you mentioned, you know, generative AI, which is artificial intelligence, which is on everybody's mind right now. Everybody's talking about it and seeing what implications it may have. There's been great fears that AI, and there's been various studies that have been done suggesting that AI could essentially put 40%, 50%, 60% of the current jobs, current jobs done by humans, could render them essentially redundant, and they can all be done by, by various AIs. And yet, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the famous old quote from The Economist, I think it was Robert George, what, 20 or 30 years ago, when talking about computers, said, you know, computers are everywhere except in the productivity data. What do you think here? But again, we are seeing what we would think would be tremendous disruption from the introduction of AI. And yet we do have this astonishingly tight labor market, even if you allow for the fact that there are a lot of people who have left the labor force and you don't take the headline unemployment rate as the defining unemployment rate, the discouraged workers and others, it's still pretty low historically. Is there any evidence yet, at least, that this AI revolution is really having any significant effect in terms of displacing workers? Huge question. I think the Bob Solo quote oh, Bob Solo, you you're right. Sorry, yeah. is, who sadly passed away recently. Yeah. The quip is actually important for the current context. The answer I would have given before AI is that so-called general purpose technologies, think internal combustion engine, electrification, mainframe computing, the internet, all of those took literally decades to materialize in productivity, not because of science, but because of the organization of business and commerce. A number of economists, both historians and technology specialists, have focused on this. What makes me either more optimistic or worried, depending on the lens you want to use, about generative AI is I see it as working much faster. It's not going to require 
the decades of reorganizing factory floors and offices to have an effect. And I think traditionally, when you've had technology changes, you have both what economists would call displacement effects. Some people lose their jobs, but then also a reinstatement effect. Other new jobs are created. That's always been in balance or slightly positive for the economy. The puzzle for generative AI is whether that will be true. Surely for the most intuitive experts among us, AI has got to be a winner. It improves our human capital. But for many people in the, let's say, the middle of the skills distribution, and I'm not talking about factory workers, I'm talking about accountants and attorneys and architects, generative AI could have a big effect. So I think this is one where public policy needs to focus and focus quickly. In that context, what's your view of what's been happening to productivity then? Because we have seen in the last year or two, this big increase in labor productivity. Now, again, just for background, we've had these sort of phases in the productivity data and productivity weakened quite significantly after the 1980s. Then we had this sort of apparent boom in the 1990s. And then after the financial crisis, I think particularly after 2009, 2010, a real slowdown in productivity growth instead of the sort of one to one and a half percent productivity growth that we've been used to. I think it was significantly below one percent a year. Now we've seen a real acceleration in the last couple of years. Now, of course, there's one view, which is this is simply a classic economic phenomenon. A productivity increases, you know, when you were emerging from a recession and we had obviously the mother of all recessions, a brief one with the pandemic. Tons of people are laid off. Initially, companies respond to the recovery by just increasing output with available labor resources. They're reluctant to take on additional labor. So you see a surge of productivity, therefore, in terms of output per hour achieved by labor. And some people ascribe the increase in productivity we've seen in the last couple of years to that, although that doesn't obviously fit with the sort of payroll numbers that we've seen. Some people think, no, we are seeing some genuine underlying technological change here, which probably is related to AI or something else. What's your view? I think it's both. I think part of the recovery story is right, but I do think we're in the early days of an incipient productivity boom. Virtually every business leader that I speak with feels that way about opportunities in his or her firm. And as I say, generative AI is likely to have its productivity effects occur more rapidly than previous generations of general purpose technology. So in that sense, to me, the risk is not science and it's not even so much economics. It's more the politics of how we handle AI and the disruptive effects it's likely to have. The fact that both of our major presidential candidates seem not that open to changes in the economy is what gives me some pause. Actually, every wave of technological innovation produces a lot of hand-wringing about what it means for labor, everything from obviously the Industrial Revolution right up to the Internet age. And there's particular concern with AI, because again, as I said earlier, some estimates suggesting half the jobs currently done by humans in the economy could be done by generative AI. But do you think this is going to just prove to be exactly the same again, overdone alarm about the impact of AI on demand for labor? I think on balance, there's probably too much worry. You know, Keynes worried in 1930 and the possibilities for our grandchildren that, you know, work would disappear. We've been through this before. That said, the pace here is what worries me. Again, will our political establishment come up with transition assistance for workers and firms during a period like this, I'm not so sure. So I'm not worried, again, particularly about the science or the economics, but I am a little about the political response. You mean the risk is there'll be a kind of defensive response, too much regulation? Right. Defensive, sand in the gears kind of response. You know, just as in the trade area, we now have an unfortunate bipartisan consensus against openness 
I worry that we could get a, an unfortunate bipartisan consensus that says, let's just slow this down rather than let's help people adjust. I want to go back to a little bit where we started, which is the subject of Biden boom, if you like, the role that Bidenomics, shall we say, is, is playing right now. Again, you listen to people from the administration. They talk about a transformative economic moment. They've spent you know, huge amounts of money. Obviously, there was the initial stimulus, but with things like the Inflation Reduction Act, massive investment in green technology in particular, and healthcare and some other areas like that, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that obviously we also had. We've had a CHIPS Act, which is promoting domestic manufacture of U.S. semiconductors. You know, they've talked about, a again, a transformation in supply-side economics. Supply-side economics used to be, it was a conservative thing, things like, you know, you work for George W. Bush. It was about tax-cussing, deregulating, about letting the free spirits of capitalism go to work. They talk about a new supply-side economics, which is about bolstering the supply capacity of the economy through some of these investments, through green technology and various other things like that. Again, you're a conservative, you served under a Republican president, but you're an economist, you've watched all this. How do you view all this? Is this just another exercise in kind of progressive left-wing enthusiasm for government picking winners and telling people how the economy should be run? Or is there something to this? Is there something different that maybe there are lessons here that we need to learn? I'm skeptical that this industrial policy is going to be very effective. I could imagine going up or down. In other words, I could imagine saying we should have increased support for basic research a lot and put applied research centers around the country to help with technology development. That's a great use of government assistance. I'm less persuaded that writing large checks to incumbent companies is a good answer any more than I generally would be. And we could also go very specific in the weeds if there's a very narrow specific technology for defense, maybe we focus there. But I found Jake Sullivan's Brookings speech last year where he outlined this new worldview to be extremely unpersuasive. It's just more warmed over arguments for industrial policy. Of course, one definite impact it seems to have had is on the fiscal side. Now, it's not just Joe Biden, of course, but it's under President Trump. The U.S. fiscal position deteriorated. We have a debt to GDP now of over 100 percent. How much of a constraint, how much of a concern should this be? How much of an impact is it going to have over the medium term? Well, I think you said a should and will. So on the should, it should have an immediate impact. We are on an unsustainable fiscal path, and the right way to fix that is now. Both parties have united in saying that that's not going to happen. Every single major driver of fiscal instability is simply not going to be addressed. So I think it's going to have to wait for a crisis. The mildest version of a crisis is probably the trust funds for the two big social insurance programs, Social Security and Medicare, running out of money, but it may take something else. Glenn Hubbard, professor of economics at Columbia University, former dean of the business school there, and of course, former chair of President's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. My pleasure. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'll be back next week with another episode, which we'll be digging into some of the big issues that are facing the US and indeed the world. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great week and speak to you soon. 